Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and on the podcast, we discuss all aspects of technology and life in international schools, with new episodes live every two weeks. We focus on people who are currently working in schools, and we talk about life in their current country and dive into some specific topics. The podcast is brought to you by Acer for Education. People always ask what Chromebooks we recommend and what Windows laptops we recommend, and after trying literally all of them, we always recommend Acer. If you'd like to get more info and try out some devices, please just go to gg.gg forward slash Acer Education. That's gg.gg forward slash Acer Education, and we'll get right back to you. Also, the podcast is brought to you by Apps Events. We're a Google partner. We work all around the world. We've just got one piece of new information right now. This is in, in January 2021. We're a G Suite Enterprise for Education partner. That's Giuseppe. This is a bunch of premium tools available to people using Google at their schools. We can help you get set up with a free one-month trial. So please check out the link in the show notes, and we'll do that right away. And now, on to the interview. Hello, and welcome to the International Schools podcast. Uh, it's Friday the 6th of August. I'm uh, here in Prague in Czech Republic. We've recorded, I think, three episodes this week with my co-host, John Micton. H- how are you doing, John? Great. Thank you. I'm doing really well and uh, been really a busy week doing podcasts and meeting some fantastic guests. So really excited about Al's uh, book and talking to him about that. Definitely, John. You're, you're in Luxembourg. How, how's things there at the moment? No, no, the floods seem to have gone down, I think. It and, is raining still, uh, but the floods have gone down. But we have had a very wet summer. And uh, unfortunately, the floods really had quite an impact on many communities here. And people are still trying to get their heads around that. So uh, challenging summer for many. But uh, yeah, rain, at least we know what we're getting. Definitely. Well, today we're talking with Al Kingsley. He runs a company called... Uh, net support and he's been involved in ed tech for a long time and he's uh, written a book my secret ed tech diary which which i've got here um i'll very kindly sent it to us john's got a copy so welcome to the podcast al hi folks lovely to be here i'm slightly nervous given i'm your last podcast of the week so no pressure no don't worry no no pressure we've uh you know like it's um the good thing about the podcast is you get to talk to a lot of people i mean not not that you wouldn't have talked to us anyway but you know, it gives someone a reason to have a chat if you're going to record it. And that, you know, so like it's it's actually, you know, even if nobody listened to this, I think, John, it's just great for all the people we get to talk to. Yeah, absolutely. And I love doing this with you and talking to our guests. But I know that we're not being ignored because definitely on social media, we're getting a lot of traffic, which is wonderful. Yeah. I think a lot has to do with the guests and their a wisdom and expertise, what they're sharing. And those are provocations for a lot of our listeners. So uh, hopefully Al will provoke us with some thoughts that maybe we didn't think about. Definitely. Just a bit of inside baseball and podcasting. I mean, it's interesting because I, start, I started a podcast, I'm not sure, like maybe two years ago. And then John joined a few months ago. John, John was kind of a regular guest, so it made sense for him to start co-hosting. And, and I've done almost nothing in terms of promotion, but it's growing and growing, you know. Uh, we've just, we, like Even like this week, we just set up a YouTube channel. So we're putting all our content on, on YouTube as well. Um, and like, I was looking already and like, we've already had like four people subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's only been there a day. I'm like, who are these people? You know, we haven't even, <laughs> haven't even told anyone the link, you know? So it's I, me, Dan, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one's John, one's Al. But you know, it's, um, it's just great all the people who see it. And you know, I, I get emails regularly. And it, it, you know, for people thinking of doing a podcast, I think it's a great thing. It's, um, there's a lot of podcasts out there, you know? Um, I think, you know, you've got to do it long-term to get any traction, you know. I think I, I was doing it for like six months, a year with no one listening to it. And then it started getting, and then and then people start going through all your back catalog, you know. So anyone listening to this and wants to do a podcast, I'd recommend to do it. Don't be scared that it's a crowded market, but don't expect to be the next, you know, sort of Joe Rogan or NPR or whatever. Like it's 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 a niche audience, you know. But if, you, if you're focusing on like John Amir on international schools primarily, it's a, you know, it's not, it's a small market, but it's, you know, very focused interest group. Yeah. And I think also the international school community and Al, I'm sure you've had been exposed to that is there's a lot of amazing innovation and work going on with educators in the different schools in different countries, different types of schools. We had Denry the other day talking about nonprofit and profit. But uh, what I like about this podcast is the guests and the provocations and then kind of the traffic we get from our audience saying, well, wow, that really sparked an idea that I never thought about. And there's so many amazing educators doing 
uh, kind of silently doing amazing things that are not getting amplified through social media, but they're really focusing on improving student learning and hats off to all those educators. It's also inspiring to be uh, connected with them. Al, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the last couple of years we've seen a real growth in terms of um, the, the podcasts and resources that are, are online. I'm, I'm always one that says, you know, that one of the biggest strengths of, of educators is that kind of reflective practice and that willingness to share the good and the bad. And I think that kind of community approach has really um, stood out over the last few years. And you're right, the, the podcast libraries and communities out there have, have absolutely accelerated over recent years. But I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think your point is really nice is it's not about consuming in, in, the, in the now. Lots of people dip into those resources over time and they're a really useful thing to be able to listen to. You know, ironically, me talking about a book, but actually podcasts are a really accessible way of consuming information while you're doing other things. Uh, and I think people's willingness to join and share ideas has, has really added a, a, an amazing resource online. Um, and, and, you know, having done podcasts and we have one at, at Net Support and it's bought radio channel, which we, we've been doing for a few years. You're absolutely right. You know, it takes time to build people's awareness and audience and probably a little bit of trust that you're sharing information that's interesting and useful. Um, but those that kind of stick with it, like yourselves, you, you know, gradually people kind of dip into it, discover those fantastic interviews and ideas, and, and then we'll share with their peers and it will, you know, gradually um, accelerate over time. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm very um, appreciative to have a chance to chat with you two today. Definitely. Well, I first heard about your book. Um, you did a good job of promoting this because a couple of people I know, Zytoon, I think you know, uh, was sort of shared it on Twitter. And so you obviously handed out a few advanced copies of the book, which was great. But before I get into the book, I'll just keen to learn a bit about your background. I know you've got a, an edtech company. I've, uh, I've started a couple of small edtech uh, projects, none of which I'm running now, you know, but, I, but I work with schools all around the world like you do. Um, I think you can tell me, maybe you're more UK focused, but I'm just keen to learn about your background. Like what, um, how did you start your business and, and what else do you do? Um, well, my background um, in the very, very early days was actually, I, I went into and my first job was working with Barclays Bank and then Unilever working in finance. Um, yeah. And that was in the uh, late My 80s. first job actually was Barclays Capital as well, the investment banking part of Barclays in IT. Uh, well, I was slightly less glamorous. I was in the branch, but nonetheless. Okay. Um, <laughs> But, but you know, very quickly, I, I, I discovered personally that I um, had kind of two big lessons. One was that I found the technology more interesting than the, the finance, which is perhaps not the most common approach. Uh, and the second one, I think, which is more a reflection on, on me and probably my impatience as a, a youngster was um, in large institutions, it's very hard to um, come up with ideas and innovate because there's procedures and process for everything and, you, and your voice really isn't heard. So I wanted to um, kind of branch out because I thought I could do anything and everything. Of course, I've, I've learned those lessons over the years. It's not quite as straightforward as that. Uh, so, so moved into providing IT services for companies and at the same time doing their books for them. Uh, and then I met a gentleman, um, Dave Apsey, who worked at the time at Pearl Assurance. He was an IT manager and he'd come up with the idea of his first remote control product for DOS. So we've gone back quite a few years now. Yeah. The old black and white screens. And anyway, from there, the business kind of evolved. Um, it went from remotely managing PCs that are far away from an IT support point of view to hang on a second. If we can manage one PC that's 100 miles away, how about 30 PCs that are 10 feet away in a classroom? Obviously, different functionality needed. And so that was the first iteration of our sort of um, technology for interaction within schools. Over yeah. the last 30 years, we've kind of evolved the technology to be, you know, I refer to them as kind of the layers of an onion. If you think about a school IT estate, so we focus very much on everything from the perimeter IT management to the safeguarding to the instructional tech. Head office for us is in Peterborough in the UK, um, and that's where we develop all our technologies. We do have offices in Germany, uh, in Atlanta, in the US, and in Toronto. Um, and we've been going now, say, for 30 years and currently have just over 18 million users around the world in 120 countries. So we've got a fairly good install base and pedigree. And along that journey, you know, some of the things that will feed in perhaps to our conversation today, you know, are um, in order to move forwards, you have to make mistakes. And it's about learning those lessons and seeing over time the things that have really become embedded and successful. Definitely. And I like this thing that you talk about, Al, this learning from our mistakes and, and that whole capacity to 
understand if you make a mistake, it's actually uh, an advantage because there's a learning opportunity. And, and that I think the culture of learning mistakes has really changed and the dispositions that people have towards that has changed. And especially for educators, I think uh, being more vulnerable and open in, in that collaborative aspect I think has been a real shift and maybe the pandemic, which hopefully we'll talk about, really emphasize the importance of being able to be a little vulnerable, but also to be very collaborative and open that door that maybe you closed. I often refer to, you know, mistakes are simply stepping stones to success. Um, and I think the thing is, you know, I've told you a bit about my, my commercial journey over the last 30 years. You know, for, for the last 20 years, um, I've been involved in school governance um, and trust leadership. So um, alongside being um, a governor and chair of governing bodies, I'm, I'm chair of two multi-academy trusts um, and have been for the last decade. Um, I sit on the Regional Schools Commissioner's Head Teachers Board, supporting education and also chair the Independent Send Board. And so one of the nice things that, you know, drives a lot into some of the narrative of, of things that I talk about is having a, I wouldn't say unique because there's, there's plenty of people who have that kind of involvement, but a fairly unique perspective in terms of ed tech from a, a technology perspective, but also in terms of life in schools and the pinch points and the challenges in growing schools, particularly my experience in the UK with multi-academy trust, because often our approach has been bidding and building new schools and adding them to an existing infrastructure. So lots of the strands in terms of the things we might talk about kind of feed into that. Um, and people often say, why do you give up your time to support education? But some of the things you've already alluded to, I think actually some of the best practice in schools are actually things you take away and business can learn from as well. It's a very symbiotic type understanding of the, the strengths of different types of organizations. How do you, how did you get involved in the school governance? It's something I, I've, I've started to look at now, you know, my, my children are going to school, so I want to get involved. How did you get involved in that? Was it, was it the fact that your children went to this school or, and also how do you sort of, I'm curious how you sort of manage your time in that. Is it something you work on the weekends or do you just block off time? I'm, I'm just interesting as it's something yeah. I'm, I'm looking to do. No, it's, it's a really good question. Um, I'd moved across to the U S um, back in 99 and set up our, our U S business. So I lived in Atlanta with our children who were very young at the time. Uh, I decided in 2002 back end to come back to UK head office and to kind of carry on pushing things through. And also the children were at a point where we needed to decide which side of the pond we were going to live for their education pathway. So they joined a new school here at where I live in Peterborough. And, and the school at the time was going through the normal challenges, new school growth, how does it shape its direction? Uh, and they were looking for people to get involved. And, and I've always been a, a view, which is if you've got an opinion on things and you want to support things, you need to roll your sleeves up and get involved. So I started off being simply a governor of an individual school, then became the chair of governors of that school. And then we became a multi-academy trust so we could bid to build new free schools. And then I became chair of the, gov the regional governors leadership group. So we were sharing best practice between other mats. Uh, and as happens with the change in the academization agenda in the UK, uh, the regional schools commissioner have a head teachers board, which is not surprisingly by its name is uh, made up of head teachers and CEOs, uh, but they also wanted to have support and a membership to, ref to, ref to sort of support and reference um, governance, management and financial probity within trust. So I was asked to, to join that board. Um, and so there's a kind of a natural kind of progression. And sure. in terms of time, um, I'm very much being a view which, you know, you can sleep well when you're dead. Um, I don't sleep many hours. <laughs> Uh, I also think it's really easy to invest time in something that you're actually passionate about and you enjoy. Yeah. So I'm a very yeah. early waker. I tend to enjoy the early hours. And that came back from my time in the US with the time shift to the UK. I used to be in the office at 5 a.m. and I could work with the UK team for a few hours until the American crew started. And I just followed that through when I came back to the UK and have continued on that kind of time zone. Um, yeah. And yes, I'm very lucky. I've got an amazing team at Net Support, And without a doubt, I have a degree of flexibility that means I can dip out for meetings or you know come along to events and speak about things and i know i've got great people who are um pushing f things forward on the business so i don't take that that element for granted but certainly most evenings i'm um i'm at a school somewhere now you had said something very interesting because generally schools always and if you look at a lot of the literature of pundits pedagogues and organizational leaders uh they always talk about how business can teach school things but you actually flipped it and said, no, hold on here. There's a lot of things happening in schools that businesses can learn from. And I just found that 
really interesting because often the narrative's the other way. So wh why why that statement and what has kind of provoked you in that thinking? I think that's a good starting for 10, which is if you go into a, any kind of role to provide support, and as we say with governance, you know, that critical friend, challenge and support, if you go in with a mindset that you're only going to teach and you're never going to learn, I think you're a fool. I mean, I'm an advocate of lifelong learning. And if we think about what happens in schools, and let's think about the last 18 months, schools had to massively adapt almost overnight, whether it was the delivery of teaching and learning, assessment, how they delivered a safe working environment, support for their staff. And we celebrate how some businesses have adapted, but we also recognize that schools had to massively adapt with a very dependent cohort rather than a workplace. And with my time working in schools, I mean, I alluded to the reflective practice. I think in business, there's a, it's, it's often important to be bold and brave, but I think sometimes that balance between that and being reflective and being open to, you know what, I got that wrong. Sometimes that takes an extra layer of um, self-confidence that always isn't present in the way that businesses push and drive forward. Uh, and, and I'm quite open and happy to say, you know what, I've made a few mistakes along the line. As a business, we don't always get things absolutely right. But actually, I think we're stronger for that journey and being willing to hold our hands up and say, well, we didn't get that right. So we changed and we did this. And you know what, this does work. And I think within schools, that collegiate approach is really important. To lessons it's interesting to as a technologist, you know, like I'm always on top of the new things and you're always like, you know, saying to teachers, you could do this, you could do this, but then you've, you've got to take a step back because there's only so much, so many new systems that teachers can handle and they get kind of, you know, systems fatigue, I call it. And I, I see that all the time where you've got to balance is, do you really need this new system? Because actually that, you know, a quarter of the teachers are going to use it and then the rest aren't. And it, it's, it's a, John knows this better than anyone, I would say, you know, given his tech director over, you know, people, there's a lot of fatigue from constant new systems and you've got to manage What's the best technology solution with what actually are people ready for it? I don't know what you say, John. Yeah, and I, I agree because when you're a teacher with 24 or 36 graders, you don't want to be trying to work out how this thing works because it's just going to be downhill. So I think teachers love keep it simple. They love consistency, stability. And I think sometimes we underestimate if I'm just going to use, for example, Padlet. Okay, it's just one of the many things. But there is so much amazing things that happen in Padlet that maybe I don't even realize, but a teacher, if they have the time and become very comfortable with it and their kids become comfortable with it, that's where the innovation starts occurring because they're starting to think within the parameters out of the box. And I think so often when we introduce student information systems or whatever, Teachers have a very busy day. They're dealing with human beings all day and their nuances and complexities. And it's if, if it's not stable, simple, and easy to use, I think it makes it really challenging. And I agree with you, Dan, this idea of portal fatigue. And I think many schools, when they went into the pandemic, they suddenly realized they had too many different venues. And people were like, where do I find the information? And I think narrowing it down and keeping it simple. And I think in, uh, in Al's book, you do a really good job jumping around talking about that. You know, the idea, who are you listening to? Uh, what kind of conversations are you engaging with? And there's a whole section on communication. How are you communicating that to the audience? So, Dan, absolutely. I, I, I would love to hear from Al what if this echoes with some of your own learning and especially in the book, you amplify that a bit. Gents, you're absolutely uh, men after my own heart on that topic. Um, you know, I talk a lot uh, you know, in one section about building a digital strategy and about the fact that it starts at the heart with the voices of teachers and learners. And around that, you have different stakeholders that feed in. Uh, and I think sometimes it's very easy to go for the outside in approach that you take a, a fiscal view or a strategic view on tools that you need without considering what actually is going to have the most impact and, gonna, and likely to be embedded. And that's linked to, you know, communication, as you've touched on, John, about taking people along on the journey, getting buy-in, people having a voice as part of it, um, and about having the right approach and capacity. Um, and, and so one of the things that I reference very heavily there, which, you know, you might think is ironic from someone in the ed tech space is less is more. Uh, there's not a prize for who can use the most technology. The prize <laughs> is for 
using the right technology. I would, I would win that prize if I was that prize. To have <laughs> well, yeah, well, congratulations, Dan. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think, I think the key measures of success, you know, we look at all these different things with technology and actually getting a few things done well and actually getting success from that, success that you can measure builds confidence in terms of taking to the next step. And the way that you build confidence isn't just about buying the right solution. It's about what you wrap around it in terms of the CPD, the support, the actual validity, how you actually are going to measure impact. And there is a timeline, which is actually, you know, you don't want to build on dodgy foundations. If you're going to change something, then then do it in stages. And, and often the capacity, the time, you know, we're just assuming that our, our teachers who have already got a, a full agenda and some with current requirements are going to learn new tools and are going to build confidence in it. And without the confidence, you know, we've seen it time and time again, shiny new devices arrive in the classroom. And after the first couple of lessons where the behavior of the technology wasn't quite as expected with those 30 eager learners facing you, the next time you start a lesson, you're less inclined to, to reach for the, the tablets or the Chromebooks. You tend to head to the, to the whiteboard and do it a different way. And so what then happens is you get that, again i reference it kind of as part of my introduction you know you get all these landmarks of um, historical events where technology wasn't successful yeah and nobody actually pauses to say well was it the technology at fail or was it the project the way that it was implemented the support that was put in the training where was the actual failure you know and i think that's why when we talk about what the priorities are you know that that element of of cpd and planning and making sure it's it, it meets the need for our you know sen learners and it's got accessibility it comes full circle to the vendor's perspective, which actually is, you know, lesson learned, folks. Uh, the most complicated tools aren't the best tools. They're the simple ones that work across lots of platforms that are easy to use, easy to get confidence in. They're actually likely to be the ones that have got longevity and good value to the school. It's, in it's interesting what you said, John. Do you remember when the first of, when we ran the Google Summit together in 2011? Or was it 2012, whatever it was? And we, you remember we had the um, all the Googlers there for the... Um, yeah. The senior leaders, we had a meeting yeah. with the senior leaders from all the international schools in New York. And then a friend of mine, Stefan Lacker, who's really interested, he's worked on IT projects. I, I worked for him when I was a, in the business world as a contractor, a really high level guy. And he said, he's, every IT project he's seen uh, in business and in schools that has failed as generally because of, being, because of a lack of training or a lack of, not just from external people, but from, from a, or getting the central t team in the school or the business trained. And he said it's, you know, that that's what he's seen as that was similar to what you're saying. I think, Al, the, the training and, and the implementation of something is is as important and more important than the, than the technology. Absolutely. Yeah. And John Hattie just came out. I don't know, Al, if you saw that. Uh, not all gold is glitters or uh, might be. But basically, uh, the most extensive meta report on the impact of education technology and basically the thing, the most impactful thing is teachers being videoed in their teaching and then having that as a reflective process. That was the most impactful. Pretty much everything else, there is no evidence that it's uh, supported learning or enhanced learning, which, you know, it's a meta study. And I, I would, there are moments where I would disagree. In your book, Al, you kind of highlight as something that's kind of small is this parent-teacher conference. So, and, and I think it's a great example of how something that's very simple and very not that demanding has such a big impact. So many schools had parent-teacher conferences and usually the parents queue up and they sit in a chair outside and there's a timetable. And some schools do it virtually through a booking, you know, through an Outlook calendar or Google, but it's still this idea that you come to school and you have to sit down with the teacher. Sometimes it's with a student, student conference, student-led conferences or the teacher. But in this, in your book, you talk about how that shift where suddenly parents could be in the office, mom and dad that might be both working now could actually attend the parent-teacher conference because they can't physically go there or the dad that's traveling or mom that's around the globe, suddenly that parent-teacher conference had a much bigger engagement, not because of the nature of the parent-teacher conference, but the accessibility and the ease by using Zoom or Microsoft Teams or Google Meets. Suddenly, 
elevated that conversation. And now many schools are saying, why would we ask parents to come in when we can just do it virtually? And I really like that uh, focus that you do, because to me, that's one example that you use well in your book of highlighting just a small shift. It's not that big. Actually, the conference and the, the structure doesn't change. It's the venue and how you approach it. I'm just curious yeah, I why you pick that than other well, things. I think I think the, the, the point was, you know, I, I think one of the positives we had over the last 18 months, two years, was we gave schools and educators a license to take risks with technology. Not crazy risks, but take risks in terms of trying new things, things that were never up top of the list on the priority list. And so when you when you try new systems, naturally, some things will work well and some things will fail. And I'm, I'm always an advocate of glass half full, not half empty. So look at the things that have got multiple benefits. And the reason I talked about the parents' evenings, the parent conferences, and, and, and the, the successes there is because it's actually a, a multifaceted win, in my view. One of the biggest challenges for schools is engagement with hard-to-reach families particularly. Um, often it's the same consistent few that are at the school gate and the ones that will come to the school events, but it's the others that you really want to build that relationship rapport with. That's where teachers you know, get that understanding of the family dynamic and we know certainly with our younger learners, the more there's parental engagement, the more positive impact it has in terms of their learning. So when we, when schools tried that, there were a number of things. The first thing is, hey, we found a tool that actually works because we find that parents are more likely to engage and many schools have su had success with it because it's avoided the got to finish work early, the travel costs, whatever it might be to attend. At the same time as that, what we also found was it had a positive for staff. And we can't keep talking about staff well-being if all we end up doing is sticking posters on the wall, you've actually got to do something tangible. And, and the tangible on that was, instead of parents' evenings always overrunning and being a late night at school, staff could do it from anywhere. And by scheduling a five-minute slot with each parent, it didn't overrun. It was structured and organized. Parents often speak more freely because they haven't got the parents of their children next door sat two meters behind them waiting to come up next and talk to the teacher. So there were lots of wins. Now, I'm not suggesting that um, let's do everything virtual and that's QED, that's the solution forever. But again, that word that often gets picked up, blended, springs to mind, which is, well, you could actually have a mixture during the year. And actually, that's a real win. If parents engage more, teachers find it more easy and manageable, combine the two, and there's a tick, you know. And, and the list goes on. You know, we were talking about delivering remote learning. I was interested in your comments, you know, a lot of schools went from the idea of let's just mirror a day synchronously to recognizing that actually asynchronous exemplars are the best way for children to access key information at different times. Actually, it's a useful one for staff CPD as well, different format, but that same sharing best practice. Um, but the conversation was then like, so when it's normally the Easter holidays and you all come in over the holidays to do revision classes for our GCSE and A-level groups, have we considered that maybe we could have done it without you needing to drive 50 miles into school for that day? And that actually, rather than just the 50% of students that attended the revision classes in the holidays, we could have recorded that and made it online available to the other 50% who might have consumed it at a different time. And so suddenly you kind of think, it's kind of stating the obvious. It makes sense to have that flexibility to provide the information to everybody, not just those that attend. And so I think, although that might seem trivial, you've always got to look and, and perhaps sometimes take the things that you've taken for granted and actually make a point of saying, these are things that we can embed and take forward that will add to the existing practice that we already do and did before. Um, and I think that's why I was really keen to try and recognize that there is a risk that by acquiring all these new skills and doing things differently, if you just flip back to the way it was pre-pandemic, over many months, you will, you will lose those skills. You'll lose confidence in using those tools if you're not using them consistently and regularly. And that, to me, would be a huge shame. Yeah, and in your book, you talk about a bit of the acceleration. Uh, you know, having been an IT director and, and Dan's also been part, you know, working with schools, one of the things that often is the resistance or the more slow uptake because there's not as much of an urgency or it's a matter of choice. And actually what is happening in the classroom works really well. Good grades are taking place. Kids are happy. Why do I need to add this layer of technology to something that already works? And that often has been the conversation. And then suddenly the pandemic came 
And I know that digital learning coaches and tech facilitators around the world suddenly were the busiest people on earth because suddenly it was a non-negotiable. You need to know how to do a screencast. Guess what? You need to know how to facilitate a Zoom or Microsoft Teams meeting. That just posting PDFs is not going to get kids engaged. You know, you need to think of creating a a kind of a project-based learning assessment. And you talk about that acceleration and how that really shifted things. What's interesting now is you're kind of almost, there's like a little bit of a red flag. You're saying, hold on here, guys. Let's not go back to where we came from. How do we ensure that momentum continues when there is not the intrinsic urgency to do it? It's a a really good question. And and yeah, absolutely. There's been a, a real accelerator over the last 18 months. You know, I think there's a number of different strands there. Again, reflecting back on the strength of schools capacity to embrace change when they need to one of the main reasons that the consideration for digital and i refer to it as you know creating a digital strategy but it can come under all sorts of different labels it was always down the priority list we've got other priorities right now we can't possibly accommodate that whilst we're also dealing with x y and z along comes the pandemic and as well as having to deal with all sorts of other new variables in terms of keeping our kids safe and health assessments risk assessments Certainly now then thinking about, you know, CAGs and TAGs, center assessed grades, teacher assessed grades this year. Schools managed to actually adopt technology, get things rolled out quickly and actually identify they could do these things. And so where I think there's this opportunity is that many schools have looked and said, look, it's great adopting a point solution, something for a short period of time to meet a need. We're quickly and effectively using Teams or Meet or whatever to deliver some kind of online experience and some have obviously rightly gone further and are using it for their assessments and their class lists and their one notes whatever platform again I, I try and be very agnostic in terms of platforms um when we move forward i think the, the point of, of essence is really let's take the reflective practice let's look at what's worked well let's look at what could evolve aligning and comparing as part of that venn diagram i try and share in the book about what actually are the is the school development plan and what are the pinch points from a teacher's perspective because we could have a conversation, and I'm not wishing to um, to tell a teacher how to do their job any more than I'm sure they wouldn't want to tell me how to develop a new bit of technology. But it's very easy to say, well, we don't need tech because this works. And the question is always, but could it work better? And and are you receptive to that? Now, of course, the, the ability to say, could it work better, is aligned with capacity. And that's always the missing thing. If only I had time, I could. And I always say with EdTech, the risk is you've got a way of doing something. So you go out and look for a tool that meets that that process. But actually, the more effective way is to have a look at the tools available that might require you to adapt or develop your process. And if you always go out looking for something fixed, you're going to slow down the potential rate of development. Now, along the way, and the reason why I wanted to put a bit of a yin and a yang in the conversation on the book, it puts an onus on developers and vendors because there's this awareness now and this need to meet certain um, opportunities within schools um, but vendors don't simply go to the the, the traditional path of here's a shiny brochure um, sign up now and give us your hard-earned money there's actually a requirement now to say to move this forward digital's on the agenda we're aware of this potential for benefits but we're rightly dubious that not all things will automatically result in impact and outcomes so we need to start looking at evidence bases to support the technology what are the evidence-informed backing around solutions? So vendors have had to shift to, well, don't just tell me it's brilliant and it all. if you use our product, all your students will jump up two grades in six weeks because no one's going to believe that. Let's actually put the, the research behind it. Has it been independently assessed? Have you got case studies? Have you got references from other schools that have used the technology? So it, I think it's empowered the education space, you know, which I think is a really positive thing. We've got this mandate that EdTech is now near the top of the agenda, And we've seen in some cases where there's potential for real benefit and impact, and there are others where we've got a bit of a question mark still. So now it's down to educators to say, well, we we can see opportunity, but you need to convince us that your solution is right. And by the way, we're not going to do 10 things this year. We might pick one or two things as part of our broader digital strategy, you know, and that's why I encourage schools to think three, four years down the line, where are you aiming to be? And then those individual solutions can be building blocks rather than throw away and replace a year later and so on and so on. Uh, But by putting the power in the hands of the educators, it's much more about 
well, no, you need to give me a free trial. You need to give me evidence. You need to give me references of other customers using the product. You need to convince me before I invest time trialing and evaluating that this product really will deliver what it says it delivers, you know, and that's not unreasonable. I think it's perfectly, perfectly reasonable. And I think it's, um, it also comes full circle to the bit we talked about at the beginning, surprise, surprise, which is, you know, podcast, social media, the, the voice of educators. It's very easy for good solutions via word of mouth to be spread and shared amongst educators very quickly. But it's also very easy for those that overpromise and underdeliver for that to be shared very quickly. So as a vendor, you've got a slightly different dynamic and landscape and you're either in it for the long haul or you're going to get found out. That's my view. Yeah. And that's interesting about the vendor, Dan. Uh, I know you 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 work with vendors a lot, and just wondering what you're thinking about that approach with teachers, which is definitely having worked in the business world where there's profit margin and kind of I was in sales. Uh, we were told to push, you know, uh, go back to that person again. They said no, but that's not okay. And so, just your thoughts, Dan, from what Al's saying, especially you being so involved with this kind of work. Yeah, well, I haven't had any software that we've been selling for a long time, but uh, we did a long time ago. And it's, yeah, I think I agree with everything I'll say is it's uh, you've got to have a, a evidence of a success. I mean, what you mentioned about dealing with schools, it's very different. I mean, if any, anyone who's a software vendor is listening to this, it's, um, and, and it, if you're coming from the business world, it's very different dealing with schools. You know, the hard sell doesn't work. Um, I mean, I, I don't think it works in business as much as it used to. I mean, it, the, the world's changed. I mean, if you'd say three years ago, it, people thought of, you used to get cold calls all the time and it was a regular way of selling. Now I just get annoyed when someone, I'm like, why is someone calling me on my phone? You know, it doesn't, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, yeah, de definitely the, um, the evidence base and definitely if you, if you are selling to schools, I think it's, um, you've got to build relationships uh, and you've got to be interested in it. I don't, I don't think you like, I've seen a lot of people come and go in education, but you know, you only stick in it if you're actually interested in it because generally speaking, you could make more money and, in, in dealing with enterprise clients, you know, I mean, longer sales process and it's harder, but you know, there's more money in it, I would say. Um, and so I think you've got to want to do it as well. I think, I think longevity is key because, um, I, th I think that it's, it's tough selling directly yeah. into the education space. I, I argue it's much easier to be within the education space and actually rather than saying today, please, will you buy this? It's now much more is about the collegiate approach of here's what we do. And if and when the time's right and you're looking for a solution like that, I'll be a name in your mind that you might consider reaching out to. Yep. So often it's more about that long term, about if people know you have solutions, um, it's certainly you hope if you deal the right way and people trust you, then as and when the time is right, they'll come visit you. I think the ability to kind of push and sell today, I need an order tomorrow, is much harder. Of course, businesses, you know, I, I try and share in the book, you know, from the vendor's perspective, there, there has to be a line that says, what we're producing, particularly with the move now at Advent to the cloud, where there's a, a cost associated every month for the vendor in usage of running software, it's got to be viable. And from a school's perspective, yeah. you don't want to invest in an ecosystem that six months later is not there. It creates a huge disruption to what you're doing, whether it's your SIS, your safeguarding, whatever it may be. So I think, yes, it's got to be viable, and, and therefore there has to be some commercial pressures of we really need you to, to pay for this at some point. Sure. I think the point is about whether you're looking for a sale today or whether you're looking for a long-term relationship that will generate revenue year on year. And actually, if you look and work right with customers, and I'm a big advocate of co-production, so you shape things to be what schools really need, then actually there's a potential to make more money in the long run. And making money shouldn't be a, a, a nasty word. The point is, is do you justify it? In other words, if you make a really good solution that meets the needs of schools and, and mitigates a particular issue or helps support learning and outcomes in a certain way, and schools see it as good value, then you should celebrate the fact that they've continued to renew it every year for 10 years with you. That says that you've got a great relationship where you're doing what you said you'd do. Uh, I'm more skeptical of the buy everything today and we'll never speak to you again. The kind of the one hit approach, which I think is, is yeah. harder. Now, you know, that's, that's very much the minority. I think much of the ed tech space now, certainly in the UK, the ed tech um, sector, you know, I'm, I'm hugely proud of and very respectful of many of the businesses because I think we've got a really good focus where, Many of the businesses, are, you know, like our own, are, are full of educators that come and bring different perspectives. So it's not a pure, you know, them and us type relationship. That's interesting about educators coming on board. You know, John, Anil, uh, he went to Moot. You remember John, uh, Dan? 
Yeah, of course. Yeah, good friends. Yeah, John. And, and so this is a startup that has a plugin for like text assessment and audio assessment in the Google Drive environment. Good tool, really good yeah, tool. Great tool. And uh, so John was an IT director for many years, and now he's in that role. Uh, you know. Uh, connecting with schools and engaging them to think about that tool as an option. And I think that true is the idea of educator voice in the process. And you talk about that a lot, uh, you know, early on in the podcast. But most of the decisions that are made in a school for tech purchases, depending if it's a public, in other words, private in the UK, or a national system often is so remote from the teacher voice. So the teachers might feel the system doesn't work, but a school district or a larger entity has made a cost benefit uh, decision and said, well, actually there's so many different locations, we're gonna use this vanilla. And so I'm wondering what is the creative tension of school leaders uh, with that? Because you, you want teacher voice, you know, you want the person at the end of the day, those decisions are maybe a little further out. Yeah, I think there's, there's a number of strands there. And again, another really good question. I, I do quite a lot of work with school districts in the US. Obviously, it's one of our um, main marketplaces. And you're absolutely right. I mean, many of the school districts have developed really good frameworks for the purchasing and adoption of EdTech that has a checklist, everything from the, the, the evidence-based research that is it platform agnostic does it integrate with our student information systems a kind of a checklist to get past the hurdles of what let's not waste our time on this tool if it's not going to be scalable i think where there's tension is not so much the kind of what i call the overarching systems the sis the finance and so on it's where schools bulk by a classroom solution that creates the tension so there's been a little bit of a release of tension for the perhaps just out of necessity the last 18 months where teachers had a bit more of a license to go find a solution that would help you continue to deliver your learning in a blended way with your students. And, and what I try and encourage as part of the shaping the digital strategy is I think it's incumbent on leaders to give teachers more voice because again, it sounds really simple, but no school's the same, no class is the same and no teacher's the same. And I think the idea that one solution will fit as a perfect template for each and every learning in space is just not going to work. I mean, I'm cha also chair of, a, of an alternative provision academy in the UK. So a school for ch children that struggle in that they're going to sit for 40 minutes, frankly, without somebody there supporting them in a, in a virtual lesson is just not going to happen. So you need to adapt and deliver in different ways. This is part of my kind of conversation about teachers need to be more empowered to make relevant choices to tools that will support their practice and their delivery alongside the broader, we need to have consistency, of course, in terms of collection of academic data so we can track progress and attainment and so on. And that really comes to the strength, I think, of school leaders. And, you know, I think our senior leadership in schools have done a fantastic job. And I have to choose my words carefully at this point. But sometimes, not always, but sometimes in schools, the challenge is when we talk about Digstrap and we need to talk, look about our digital journey as a, as a it's not necessarily an area where the senior leaders are the most confident. It may also not be an area where they have the most um, direct um, experience themselves of how it's had a positive impact within their teaching and learning practice in previous years. And so the strength of leadership, the same way as it is in a tech company like myself, is that actually we need the voices from down the food chain. We need to get the voices from those in the classrooms, the new practitioners, those that have joined us, Matt or our school district from other schools that use digital, so that we actually get a, a real reference point of individuals who understand the technology and the potential benefit. Now, the reason I do a Venn diagram is because you can say, here's all the things that we think will have a positive impact, and here's our experience to back up why we think of a positive impact school development plan what are our priorities as a, as a school or a district what are our pinch points and then my argument is well okay we do that then we tick off things like data protection privacy does it align in terms of safeguarding does it align in terms of accessibility for all of our different learners and then the finance rather than being at the heart really shapes the speed of that journey how quickly can we do that and often the reflective part is let's not go spend money let's just try and get more out of what we've already got because if we yeah. actually reflect, we'll see there's loads of devices that aren't being used effectively. So let's unlock their potential first before we go shopping. And I think 
that kind of flow, and I appreciate it takes confidence to delegate down a lot of that work to, to, to your, your team, but that ultimately is always the more successful. And I think that switch to online learning is a great example of what you're saying, because many school leaders were not teaching online. So they were not running classes and they made executive decisions and policy decisions. We're going synchronous for eight hours or whatever yes. it might be. And what was happening is teachers were in the room saying, A, I cannot switch my whole content into 45 minutes online. I need to basically cut it down by a third and a half. Secondly, half the kids don't have their mics on or their cameras on. Half of them are not even there. How do I make sure that, you know, so all these things start percolating up. And I think as that developed, those voices came up and suddenly, you know, a lot of leaders were like, whoo, okay. Tell me, let's go with asynchronous. Synchronous is have a blend community and connection. Let's make sure the little kids have a, a Zoom meeting where we're just getting to know each other, the idea of well-being. So I think what you're describing really kind of took place when we switched to online learning, where many school leaders suddenly were like, wow, I should really run a class to know how it feels to use this tool. So it's scary, John, I have to say. I mean, it's I had a lot of people pick up on it. There's this kind of unspoken sense that many picked up on initially that was, you close the classroom door in a normal setting and you trust the teacher to find the best ways to engage and interact and get the most out of the learners in the room. As soon as we'd start talking about the scary digital, the thing that not everyone was confident exactly how they should teach. And, and the point is the technology is the facilitator. It's the platform to allow the great teaching and learning to happen. And so you need to have that flexibility based on your particular cohort. Now, yeah. I think many schools sussed that in lockdown two, or lockdown three, in terms of that exactly. new and flexibility. Yeah. And that's yeah. part of the learning journey. And let's embrace that. You know, why would everybody get it right first time? I don't think anybody did really. Yeah. But you, you, you adapt and learn by the level of engagement, the actual traction that you get from it. You know, and, and we saw that actually the most important strand was for our special educational needs children. Just having that daily face and that routine and regiment and confidence with their teacher familiar face those kind of sessions were more that we would have really struggled without because those students needed that structure and routine so i think what you're saying is you know you talked about lockdown one two and three depending what part of the world you are but what i definitely saw with schools because i was teaching a course for teachers that never taught online during the pandemic was that we quickly understood that the voice of teachers, students, and parents were so critical to co-constructing the new version. Because the first time we went with whatever we thought would work, and we kind of basically translated face-to-face -face school online, and for many, it just did not work. And I think your learning support and special needs kids are a great example, even EAL, or just regular yeah. kids that struggled with it surveys and student surveys, especially schools that leverage the student input, I think they got quite nimble. And what you start seeing the second and third time round and teaching this online course with educators, I did it twice over the pandemic. It was like two different cohorts. They were coming in with different dispositions and mindsets the second time round because the idea of community and feedback and instant feedback was so important. You know, giving them a grade after eight weeks doesn't really help because every day there's a struggle. So I think that really hats off to all those school leaders and educators that together came and had the trust and said, listen, we need to listen to the kids, the parents and the teachers, and we need to reframe that. And I think. I'll, I've got something I'd like to talk about. Um, you don't really mention in your book, because I know it's the book is kind of agnostic to technology. You don't get into anything, but obviously the elephant in the room with EdTech is is Google and Microsoft. And basically pretty much every school in any of the countries we're talking about uses one or the other as kind of the basis for their ed tech. Sometimes both, I know John uses both even. Um, but I wonder how, how you see that as the, obviously I'm, I'm a Google partner, but I've also worked with Microsoft. So I've, I've got experience of, of both these things. How do you see um, the two, you know, what the two companies who kind of dominate ed tech and how do you think it, you know, schools have to think about integrating, making sure that other systems work with, with yeah. Google and Microsoft? Yeah. You're right. I didn't focus on them. I did. I did mention through the book the journey. 
other tools were being adopted. And you're right, it was almost a given that tools were follow schools were following one of those those two pathways. Um, where I, I kind of reference that, and this is a bit where we've got to be realistic, I, I think, because we absolutely don't want to be in a situation where we're running lots of individual ecosystems. That that integration of solutions makes it much easier for schools and IT teams to manage. Um, where I, I, I touch on it within the vendor section, you know, there's, there's, there's one little concern I always have with, it, with this, which is if we think back over the last 10, 15 years, the people driving the, the, the move to the cloud are Microsoft, Google, Amazon. Uh, and the reason the drive to the cloud is that actually for those vendors than it is selling point licenses of technology. And, and with that comes an extra cost to vendors as well. And so one of my concerns is that there are many that, and, and I don't mean it in a disrespectful way, are cloud blind. Cloud is the panacea to everything. No matter what we do, it needs to be cloud-based. And I, I do think there is a risk at the moment with schools looking at, and following a certain journey that they forget the fact that actually some, some technology doesn't need to be cloud-based and actually doesn't add any value at all. It actually creates extra layers of, of weakness. So I absolutely support the idea that whether we like it or not, you know, as it stands, Google and Microsoft have those core platforms that schools can build on. But I think when we're looking at other solutions, sure that where possible, solutions aren't specifically aligned with one or the other. Because I think it's easy to look at the now. And I take the example here in the UK, multi-academy trust, eight schools, we are this. You are at some point going to have other schools that will come and join your, your map that potentially will not be following the same platforms as you. Now, yes, you can change the platform and as they join you, you can say you're switching from Microsoft to Google or Google to Microsoft to be part of our bigger journey. But ideally, you don't wanna to have to retrain the staff on a whole new suite of tools. What you want is where possible, those additional apps that you use for your teaching and learning and the way that your staff um, add on top of that core framework. Ideally, they're solutions that don't rely on one platform. Think about our learners, one thing we were trying to do, mitigating the digital divide, once we got the ability to supply out 4G dongles to some of our households so that they had connectivity, was we found the way we had the best engagement was with tools that didn't care whether you were Google or Windows or Android or iOS, they were just agnostic. And so, you know, my, my one kind of hesitancy is I think both offer great things. And I didn't want the book to be a judgment on what's right or wrong, because the truth is, if I follow what I believe, which is no two schools are the same, then who am I to say which solution is best for them? What I'd rather do is present the questions they should ask to validate for themselves which approach and pathway is the best. But I do think we need to kind of keep that flexibility of let's not get us potentially embracing something new that would add value or take us a step further. Yeah, I mean, I... I personally think that schools should sign up for the free version of Microsoft and for Google. I think every school should do that, you know, have, have it, have it ready. Um, and a lot of schools do, you know, um, I think, yeah, I think we can have some controversy in the box. I think I disagree slightly about the cloud. I think you're like, you know, you're saying obviously a lot of, I mean, John, you might agree with Al, that a lot of schools think the cloud is, is everything and it definitely isn't. I just think that for a lot of, like, let's say you were starting a school now, like a small school and, um, I think the the cost of having your own servers or even a host layer of complexity that putting things in the cloud would would solve. You know, I think if you're if you're a bigger trust and you've got the IT infrastructure or a bigger school even or an established school, I, I think it's great. I think um, I think for for a smaller school and for a new school though, just being 100% cloud is the way to go. But I'm curious. I want you to disagree with me. I know you do. So so, what would you say against that? I would say it, you are you are right and you are wrong. <laughs> it's about <laughs> scale. And, and the reason why I say that is I agree with you that if you are a small primary school, small independent school with, with a, you know, a cohort of two or 300, the odds are you won't have dedicated specialists in IT and therefore cloud-based solutions make much more sense for you to deliver what you want to do. If you are a multi-academy trust, and bear in mind in the UK, that's well over half of all schools and the government's move is towards all schools being that way, in the US a school district, then with scale, you know, at the end of the day, what's cloud? It's a server you can access from somewhere else. There are yeah. plenty of mats that can have one school that's got the dedicated IT staff where they can host certain tools. 
but let me put it in context of of why I kind of challenge. You know, we absolutely seen the idea of having comms that's cloud based, screen sharing that's cloud based, sharing of our resources and our lesson plans and content with our kids being cloud based, all ticks the box because we've seen that's appropriate. But if I'm sat in a classroom with thirty kids and I want I'm doing an MFL lesson and I want to listen to them speaking and their pronunciation and capture evidence. Why do I need the audio from their PCs to go out into the cloud and back down again to my machine at the front of the class? Why can't it just be there? It doesn't require a server. That's a local example. Why, if I'm doing classroom instructional technology, when I'm actually seeing what they're doing on their, on their devices in the classroom, why does their screens all have to head off to the cloud through that, that valuable pipe out of the school and back down to the teacher that's two meters away from them? There are lots of examples when we think about tools that we use in, 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 in different settings within the school where it isn't as simple or black and white as everything needs to go up there. And when we also think about things like data protection and other considerations, I think whilst it's not a case of the cloud is wrong, what I, I just try and advocate is that I think it's very easy to get blind of because that's the narrative that we hear consistently from all of the big platform vendors, the ones making the money from the cloud service, it's very easy to lose focus that there might be choices or options for certain aspects of what you do within the school. And I saw in the US, we had school districts managing 70, 80,000 students that were absolutely, they that for them, they didn't want to do cloud. They wanted to do things centrally managed and they were, had the team to do it. There were other school districts where they absolutely had to rely on third-party IT support and cloud-based solutions because they just didn't have the skill set within. Back to my point, you know, one size doesn't fit all. There's lots of different models and you need to have the confidence, if nothing else, to challenge. And if you go through the why, 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 and the answer is we're going to go Google or we're going to go Microsoft for everything, then tick in the box. Absolutely. But at least you've gone through the process of, of challenging. Does it need to be and where will it be? I'd rather make sure that pipe the school has to the outside world for delivering teaching and learning isn't, you know, blocked up by other apps that don't necessarily need to. Yeah. And I think one of the things, Dan, that uh, many schools face is that, as we become more seamless and, you know, we're used to 24-7 connection. We get home, we have our internet, we watch our movies, we do whatever. There is more and more pressure for teachers that have an expectation that the school services are available 24-7. The problem with that is you need to have human beings that support that. And often, and I know in my case, in different international schools, that's always been the pinch point is should we be servicing and supporting teachers over the weekend or, you know, when we have two or three technicians and there is not a backup technician. And so I think, you know, sometimes the cloud alleviates that, but still there's still that expectation when Google doesn't work. They don't write to Google. They write to us and say, what's going on? Why can't I get my email? So I think also it's about the capacity of schools to have skilled technicians and support people that can support teachers, but also make the expectations clear that during the holidays or Sunday night, no, we are not going to respond to your email because that's the expectation. And I think what I'm noticing is there are more and more demands on tech departments to be 24 seven. And the bottom line is there are just not enough people to do that. And also the time and the energy that's required sometimes can be quite challenging. So it's about how do you balance those expectations? Because when we go in the real world or outside of school, we expect the 24 seven, we don't go to hotel and say, oh, it's okay, we don't have wireless. We go up, we go down to the uh, receptionist saying, how come I don't have wireless? You know, so I think that's one of the challenges that I see in my role is how do you balance those needs? The cloud option is good because it does give you that option to maybe take some of that workflow away from internal workflows, but the expectation is still the same. Somebody has to answer that email and the expectation is they're not going to write to Google or Microsoft. They expect you to answer them with the yeah. solution, even though you might not know the solution and the solution might be Googling it or writing to Microsoft to find out. So that, that I think it's quite complex and there are a lot of different pieces. And as you say, Al, not all schools are the same and not all tech departments are the same. And I think just understanding the culture and what is the financial capacity of actually having people to support all this. I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things is we can go back to an earlier point, which is 
the way that we've evidenced and John Hattie referenced about short exemplars recorded for asynchronous access for students. Well, I'd argue that's exactly the same for how to use our tools and get the most out of them that can be available to staff whenever they need them and at the weekend. And actually the majority of the, the questions tend to be about how do I use this technology? How do I do X, Y, or Z? And actually schools are starting to create those libraries of resources using the exact same tools they're using for teaching and learning. Definitely. Al, I think we're, we're pretty much up to our, our time, uh, 12.30 uh, European time, 11.30 UK time. I want to thank you very much. It was a really interesting chat. We should definitely get you back on the pod if you're, if you're interested. Um, Always the happy book's to. called My Secret EdTech Diary. Uh, definitely people should get it. Where, where can they find the book, Al? Uh, it's in John's hand over there. Just the one copy. We're passing it around. Oh, there's two. two. Copies, <laughs> Um, I should really join the club and do that, shouldn't I? <laughs> um, you, you can purchase it online at um, Amazon and all other good bookstores. It's available now, or you can head across to um, my website, alfinzi.com, and there's a page there with reviews and links to where you can go get it. But I um, really appreciate the chance to share some of the highlights with you today, folks. Yeah, we'll put in the show notes Al's LinkedIn, his Twitter, and his website. Uh, so you can, in the show notes, also reach out to Al. If you'd like to talk to him more or find out more about my secret ed tech diary bless you thank you folks cheers guys have a good yeah, weekend see you. have a good week everybody